Thoughts and answers. Is God an egomania? If not, why does he demand his people worship him and offer such extravagant sacrifices? Is God insecure? Well, if not, why does he state that he is a jealous God? Is God a moral monster? How can a good God demand the ethnic cleansing of the Canaanites? These were challenges leveled against the God of the Bible today. How would you answer these allegations? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucrin. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Joining Pat today to answer these formidable challenges is Dr. Paul Copan, professor of philosophy and ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. Is God a moral monster? Let's join Pat and his guest, Dr. Paul Copan, as they address these challenges right here on this edition of Evidence and Answers. Just as God overwhelmed the gods of Egypt in, through the plagues and the, and the crossing of the Red Sea and so forth, so God is seen as the one who is more powerful than the Canaanite deities as well because he is driving out the, the Canaanites from the land that they're being dispossessed, that the name of Yahweh or the Lord is going to prevail over against these Canaanite deities. Those are the sorts of things that you see going on. And so when people you know, say, well, you're not taking the Bible literally, you know, I'd say, well, you can't take both emphases literally. If you say they're driven out or dispossessed, or they're people who are surviving, like the Canaanites couldn't be driven out in Judges 1 and 2, well, are you not going to take that literally? Why are you taking the utterly destroyed literally, but not the survivors literally? And so that's the point that I'm trying to make, is we don't see genocide. You know, we, you know, of course, it's not ethnically motivated, as I said, but we see lots of Canaanites hanging around. Uh, the same thing goes with the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. God tells Saul, you know, who's about to go into a, a battle at a citadel, that you know, he said, you know, leave alive, nothing that breathes, utterly destroy them, man, woman, young and old, etc., that you know, all are to be destroyed. Well, is this what actually is intended? Well, remember the language of, uh, you know, of young and old, man and woman, etc. This is kind of stereotypical language, but it's not you know, intended you know, even literally. What we see going on in 1 Samuel 15, where the Amalekites are being fought against, you know, Saul is rebuked for, for keeping the animals alive and also keeping King Agag alive. S Saul himself in 1 Samuel 15:20 says that he obeyed the word of the Lord that he did you know, utterly destroy the Amalekites except for the animals and of course King Agag well Samuel comes along kills King Agag and then we you know we're we're left with the impression well I guess that's all the Can that's all the Amalekites there are right wrong keep reading in the same book and you see that David himself fights against the Amalekites in chapters 27 and 30. In fact, we see that there's an Amalekite army that's so large that, that 400 of them end up escaping from the clutches of David. So even though Saul said he had utterly destroyed the Amalekites, we see that there are lots of them who still remain. Again, this is the language, uh, you know, in 1 Samuel 15, this is kind of the war text language that involves hyperbole or exaggeration, but we read it kind of a more realistic scenario in 1 Samuel 27 to 30 that shows that there are lots of other 
Amalekites who happened to be around. In fact, they continued to live on uh, through the time of Hezekiah and even into the reign of Esther in Persia. So again, we just need to re-examine the text more closely, and we see that more is going on here. Now, does this mean that God is not a God of judgment and wrath? No, we're not denying that. In fact, God himself, he destroys, say, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He brings judgment through a flood. And we see Jesus himself, the, this moral example that so many hold up as being the paradigm of virtue. He himself is in agreement with what goes on, that the wrath of God, the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah, and he warns Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum that greater judgment will fall upon them because they're rejecting Jesus than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. And so you see that Jesus is not shrinking back from affirming what has gone on in the Old Testament. But again, we're also living in another era of, you know, in which we see that things are different with the New Testament people of God, that instead of, say, uh, you know, a nation that uses the sword or brings judgment, sometimes capitally, to its citizens, now we see Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 talking about church discipline, of, of making sure that someone who is living immorally is excommunicated until he repents and returns. So there's no death penalty or anything like that for these sorts of things. So the era, you know, the, there's a new era that has come. But again, we do see a God who is, as Romans 11 says, both he is you know, kind as well as severe. Behold the kindness and severity of God. Uh, Romans 11.22 says. So you see that emphasis that is going on in the Old Testament, a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding loving kindness, but also visiting those who, you know, visiting judgment on those who hate him. So there's both the kindness and the graciousness, as well as the severity of God in the Old Testament, as there is in the New Testament. Yes, you know, uh, there's a balance in God, just like there's a balance in us. You know, we're gracious, kind, and loving at the proper times, but in the proper context, we can also be just and execute judgment on immoral or unjust conduct. Well, sure, I mean, we need to be people who take those things seriously, and of course, in the context of the local church and church discipline, you know, those who are bringing division or those who are living immorally, those who are even spouting heresy, that the New Testament certainly takes, you know, makes very serious attempts at showing how these sorts of issues need to be dealt with. You can't simply let them go. So yes, there is judgment. There are terms of judgment that are used with regard to these sorts of scenarios. Of course, in the final, you know, in the end, you see that Jesus himself comes on a white horse and brings judgment to the world, that it's not, a lot of people say, well, Jesus, he said, turn the other cheek, and so forth. Well, Jesus said many harsh things as well. Look at the sorts of things that he said against the Pharisees, you know, the, the anger of their religious hypocrisy and so forth. In Matthew 23, Jesus talking about those who lead these little ones astray, those who believe in him, said it'd be better for this person to have a millstone tied around his neck and drown in the depths of the sea. You know, those who, you know, Jesus speaks about the nation of Israel, which is going to be judged through the Roman in A.D. 70. He talks about how not one stone will be left on another, that there will be judgment that is coming, that, in fact, in Matthew 21, he tells this parable of these vine keepers who are rejecting the king's messengers and then even his own son. And then Jesus said, well, what is the master going to do or the king do? When he, what is he going to do when he comes back? His audience answers, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. So you see Jesus, who is also very, there is a vehemence 
that there is an anger at sin, that there is an awareness of divine judgment. In fact, one of the things that I point out in the book, and I think it's very helpful for us to remember, is that in our Western culture, we tend to emphasize how, you know, that we need to be kind of kind and, and gentle and tolerant, and we have this kind of vocabulary of kind of putting up with things and being compassionate and so forth. Well, I think it's important for us to remember that God is also a God who brings judgment, that God hates sin and hates what it does to people. And so one of the things that I mentioned in my book, in the Moral Monster book, on page 192, I quote from the Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, who was born in Croatia, and he lived through the ethnic strife in the former Yugoslavia that included the destruction of churches, raping of women, murdering the innocents. And as a theologian, he said he once thought that the wrath and anger of, uh, you know, that wrath and anger were beneath God. But he came to realize that his view of God had been too low. And this is what he writes about those who think that divine wrath is just, you know, an awful thing, and that this is too, that we shouldn't think of God in those terms. He said, "I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath?" God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Oh, that's a great quote here. Now, here's a question that people often ask. What about slavery in the Old Testament? It seems that God allows for slavery in the Old Testament. Wouldn't a moral God just abolish slavery? What's going on there? Yeah. Great question. Again, that's kind of the second major question that people ask when they're dealing with various Old Testament issues. Well, let me make a few distinctions here. First of all, a lot of people, when they read the word slavery or slave in the Old Testament, their mind immediately goes back to pre-Civil War South, antebellum slavery. And they see pictures of slaves whose backs have been just scarred from beatings with whips. You'll read stories about, you know, by Frederick Douglass, the runaway slave who became a, a spokesman for, uh, for abolition. You read these stories and you read of the horrific testimonies of the recountings of the uh, abuses of slavery, of the, of the cruelties of slavery. And a lot of people just make that ready association well, that's a far cry from the sort of thing that we see going on in the land of Israel. So we see, for example, the in Israel, three significant differences between antebellum slavery and servitude in Israel. We need to remember, for one thing, that there was an anti-harm law in Israel, that if a slave 
or you know, more like a servant, were beaten, uh, were harmed. If you gouged out his eye or knocked out his tooth, then he was to go free. And what we're talking about here is not of lifelong slavery. We're talking about something that colonial America experienced, indentured servitude. If you didn't have enough money to come to the New World, you promised that you would pay off the debt when you got here. And so people would get on the ship, they would sign papers, it would be a contract that was legally binding, and so you'd come here and work for seven years until your the terms of the contract were over, and then you went about as a free citizen, and your obligations were done. Well, that was basically how it operated in the uh, you know in Israel, that in times of utter poverty where you you had to sell everything and you still had nothing left in order to sustain yourself, you would sell yourself into servitude as something that was voluntary but done in destitution. Usually you were in your kind of your tribal territory, and so you were with clan and so on. So you would parcel out your family members in servitude to be taken care of. Your food was taken care of, your clothing, your shelter, those things were taken care of. And then after seven years, you are free to go about things, get back on your feet and try to strike out on your own if you wanted to. Or you could commit yourself to that uh, that person and say, I love my master, my employer, so to speak. And then you could live within his household the rest of your life. That was also permitted. Again, there was a law against harming your own servant, that you could not, you know, that you've just got knocking out a tooth would set him free and you would lose the, on the investment. You would, you know, the contract was negated because of your striking out in anger or something like that. A second difference between what the laws in Israel and the Tibellum uh, slavery situation was that kidnapping in Israel was prohibited. You could not kidnap someone that was punishable by death. Whereas when you get to, of course, when we're dealing with uh, antebellum slavery, it was built on the, basically on the practice of kidnapping, grabbing people, taking them from their homelands, selling them to slavery. A third difference is this. Foreign slaves who ran away and sought refuge in Israel, they were to be allowed to settle in any of the cities of Israel. They were to be given protection from what, you know, it's likely a, a harsh master. That's why they ran away. Well, when you look at that sort of a scenario, it puts in perspective what the Code of Hammurabi, a Babylonian law code, that said that if you are harboring a runaway slave and don't return him to his master, you could be subject to capital punishment. So again, you have a very different scenario where there is a regard for the well-being of the foreign slave. And in fact, if you were an Israelite servant, and you were not being treated well, I mean, how much more would you have the right to, so to speak, run away and find refuge in another place in Israel if you were not being treated well? So these are the sorts of scenarios that we're talking about. Now, there are some tricky passages, and I go into detail on those uh, passages. I won't go into a lot of detail here since we are, uh, like the Egyptian mummy, uh, pressed for time. Let me skip to the, to the New Testament, in which I deal with what about the New Testament situation. And what I argue there is that, first of all, in the it's a different kind of slavery that we see in the New Testament, where you have the institution of slavery, whereas in the Old Testament, God wanted to keep people from being 
enslaved, you know, institutionalizing slavery. Basically, there are ways to help foreigners who came so that they wouldn't be living in grinding poverty, so you'd have gleaning laws, people who could pick the corners of a field where crops had been grown and basically gather grain and, and uh, fruit that they could pick from trees that they weren't, you know, they were to be picked clean, but that people who were even sojourners in the land coming from another country, they could find assistance in, through this kind of a system. But in the New Testament, we have institutionalized slavery in which a slave is the property of the owner. What you see going on is, a, again, a different scenario. But Jesus himself is one, some people say, well, Jesus didn't say anything against slavery. Well, actually, he spoke out against all kinds of oppression. He, in, in Luke chapter 4, quoting from the book of Isaiah, says that he has come to bring release to the captives, to bring freedom to those who are oppressed. Jesus was one who was all about setting people free from oppression. So we even have in the ministry of Jesus, in a sense, an undermining of the practice of slavery. Is slavery oppressive of human beings? Was, was Roman slavery oppressive? Well, yes, in many ways it was, and many people found it to be demeaning and so forth. I mean, there are others who found positions that were very suited to them, and, and they lived well, even though they were the property of their masters, so to speak. When it comes to oppression, when it comes to owning another person, you know, those are the sorts of things that Jesus is speaking out against. So, so we have the testimony of Jesus you know, against this sort of thing. So it's a subversive statement against the Roman system of slavery. Paul himself in Galatians chapter 3 talks about how you know, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. It's very interesting that Paul exhorts households where you have masters and slaves and Paul reminds the masters that they have a master themselves and that they're to treat their slaves with regard. In fact, in a household where you have Christian masters, that you would have master and slave together sitting around the communion table. You know, after they had their dinner, they would have the Lord's Supper together, and you'd have something that was very subversive in Roman society. Masters and slaves eating at the same table, basically indicating the equality that comes because they belong to Christ. Now, we'd also talk about the equality that they have because they're human beings made in the image of God. But this is very significant. We also have, you know, some people raise the question, well, what about Paul? Doesn't he send Onesimus back to Philemon, his slave owner? Isn't he basically do the same sort of thing that the Code of Hammurabi is doing, where you, you have to return the slave to a slave owner or else you're in trouble, you're undermining the law of the land? Well, it's actually quite different. There are a number of scholars who dispute the reading that Onesimus is a runaway slave and that Paul is sending a runaway slave back. That interpretation only came about in the fourth, late 4th fourth century, so again, it's not even something that was espoused from the very beginning by the Church Fathers, but rather what we have going, it, it's interesting to note that there aren't any flight verbs that are used, like uh, run away or fled or something like that. No, nothing like that at all. What we do see is the Apostle Paul, who is admonishing Philemon to allow Onesimus to come back, and it says, you know, bring him back not as a slave, but rather as a brother. Well, it's interesting that this is the same language that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 4, where we are no longer slaves, but sons. Again, it's not literal Roman slavery here, but rather it's spiritual bondage, and then being adopted into God's family and being freed from the shackles of 
spiritual slavery. So there's, I think, very good reason for questioning the slavery sort of picture that, that people have spoken of with regard to Philemon and Onesimus. And what Paul is basically doing is saying, rather than receiving him as a slave, someone who you know, in Roman society would be seen as dishonored, someone who is a very low status, no, receive him back as a brother, receive him back as an equal. That's the kind of exhortation that we see going on here with the Apostle Paul's exhortations to Philemon to receive Onesimus back. So that's a little bit of a sketch of what you see going on in the both the Old and New Testaments. I could say a lot more, but hopefully that will suffice for now. Yes, you know, Paul, you explain the cultural context and the biblical context very well and helps to understand the context in addressing a lot of these issues. Absolutely. Now, the final question we have here is, is doesn't religion cause violence? I mean, those who believe that their religion is the true religion will persecute those of a different faith. So isn't religion the cause of much of the violence and, and evil and war in the world? Well, that is the common objection that the new atheists bring up, isn't it? Yes, it is. And one of the things that we need to remember, and I point out in the book, is that actually the Christian faith has brought more benefit to civilization uh, that it has been responsible for the quality of rights for, say, women, uh, for you know, democracy. Even our language of human rights is a result not of, say, the Enlightenment and you know, rationalism and kind of a secular sort of approach. No, this is actually anchored in not only the biblical text, but also you know, through the Middle Ages, the emphasis on you know, natural right and natural law. And we even see that you know, in the Declaration of Independence, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, that there is a connection between rights and the existence of God who has made human beings in His image. The United Nations Declaration of Human Rights was in which all human beings are equal in dignity, well, that comes from actually Christians in consultation with various Jewish rabbis who forged the language of human rights after the Second World War. So it was really the product of Christians who were at the forefront of defending the integrity of human life against the assaults of government that could undermine and oppress those human beings. So we see that it's actually the Christian faith, you know, the Jewish Christian faith that has brought such great goods to our society. And you can read a book like Alvin Schmidt's book, you know, How Christianity Transformed the West, or something like that. It used to be called Under the Influence. But it, it's an argument for the remarkable dramatic impact, not only in with regard to rights and democracy and so on, but also the beauty of music of Johann Sebastian Bach and art and literature and so forth, that the Christian faith has inspired so many people to do great things, to achieve much. Even the founding of modern science is attributed to the Christian faith, that the earliest scientists were devoted Bible believers. So again, to say, oh, religion just does this, that if you believe in something very strongly, then it's going to lead to division. Well, you know, what about atheists? What about communism? What about what atheism brought about? A lot of the new atheists don't want to identify their atheism with warfare. Well, why are they doing the same thing with religion? You know, and, and again, just because you hold to something strongly doesn't mean that you are uh, therefore going to destroy someone who disagrees with you. That's the very point of democracy, that actually the acknowledgement of human beings made in the image of God that allows democracy to flourish. It is that kind of a viewpoint that actually engenders the kind of tolerance and civility that the New Testament calls for. So it is a, a false representation 
to say that religion is the root of all evils. Now, yes, there are things that are done in the name of religion that we would all repudiate. But the question is, is what is being done in the name of religion consistent with it or inconsistent with it? And, and of course, we would say, well, can you imagine Jesus, you know, engaging in the Crusades or something like that? You know, of course not. You know, we are taking up a, a gun at Auschwitz. I mean, of course not. So we can make proper distinctions here. And we also need to look at the benefits that, say, the Christian faith has brought. Again, that's not the result of secularism, but it's the result of the Christian faith. And uh, people like Rodney Stark in his book, The Victory of Reason, will talk about these sorts of things and document how there have been great gains that have come through the Christian faith, and that uh, the very benefits and the freedoms that we are espousing in this country, in fact, sometimes beating up on the Christian faith, actually comes out of a context of tolerance and democracy that the Christian faith helped to engender. Yes, you know, we've been talking with Dr. Paul Copan. He, he is the Pledger Family Chair of Philosophy and Ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. Wrote a terrific book, Is God a Moral Monster? And as you can see, we, time has flown by really fast. Those are just a few issues that he covers here in this fantastic book. Well, Paul, besides this book, where else can people get information on things you have written on this issue and more. Well, I appreciate your asking. Uh, I do have a website if anyone wants to look it up. It's uh, just paulcopan.com, P-A-U-L-C-O-P-A-N. And you, know, you can see the, some books and articles I've written, some you know, podcasts and videos and so forth that might be of help to people who are wrestling with this issue. Also have some forthcoming books coming out, one with InterVarsity Press on, it's called Holy War in the Bible, and uh, have a co-authored essay in there. And also there's another book coming out with B&H Academic on the Authority of Scripture, edited by Steve Cowan, and have another co-authored essay in there with Matthew Flanagan uh, on the topic of uh, warfare in the Old Testament. So again, I continue to work on this topic and refine it and add to it. So Hopefully, uh, that'll be uh, something that'll be a resource in the future. I have another book coming out with Baker in a couple of years on warfare in the Old Testament, co-authored again with Matt Flanagan. So again, just stay tuned. Uh, more is to come. Yes, he's written other fantastic books. Uh, one on relativism. is That's just your interpretation and others. So books you see with the name Dr. Paul Copan on it are those you want for your bookshelf. I've got a whole set of them there as well. So Paul Copan, thanks for being on the show. Very good to be with you. Thanks so much, Pat. This concludes Pat's interview with Dr. Paul Copan. If you missed any part of these interviews, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen to the entire interview and enjoy other great resources right there on the site. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by today's show, would you please consider supporting it and Pat's ministry in prayer and with a financial gift? by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Join us again each week for Evidence and Answers as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>